From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Hello, friends, and welcome to this Friday edition of Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm, a senior fellow at Family Research Council, sitting in for Tony today. It's my pleasure to be with you, whether you are watching us on NRB TV at TonyPerkins.com or one of the more than 800 radio stations across the country. We are so glad to have you with us. Quick reminder, because elections are approaching quickly, you will need a voter guide if you would like to get one delivered directly to your phone, text the word guide to the number 67742. That's 67742. Text the word guide to that number, and you will have a voter guide delivered directly to your phone in a matter of seconds. And it will be helpful for you as well as your friends and neighbors. So pass it along. Again, that's text the word guide to 67742. Today on the program, New York City has declared a state of emergency in connection to the illegal immigrants in that city. Will this latest development change what the Biden administration is doing? We'll talk about that. Also, the Biden administration just pardoned all federal marijuana possession convictions in what is seen by many as a step toward general legalization of marijuana. What would the impact of that be? We'll talk about the lessons learned from states that have already taken that step. In addition, a Muslim prisoner won a religious freedom lawsuit for the right not to be searched by a woman who identifies as a man. Now, what does this case mean for female prisoners who don't want to be housed with men who identify as women? We'll have that conversation as well as a discussion about Christian nationalism in our worldview conversation, all coming up today on the program. First, our headlines. With, it, with Election Day fast approaching, the Biden administration is doing its best to appeal to voters and convince them to think about something other than the economy. They attempted to cancel student loan debt, spent a lot of time talking about threats from so-called MAGA Republicans, and most recently, granting pardons to those convicted for marijuana possession. Are Americans buying what the administration is selling? With me now to discuss all of it is U.S. Representative Matt Rosendale, who's a member of the House Freedom Caucus, the Veterans Affairs Committee, and the Committee on Natural Resources. He represents Montana's at-large congressional district. Congressman Rosendale, good to see you today. Hi, Joseph. Good to be with you. Now, we have seen uh, new economic reports from the Biden administration. President Biden speaking about that today. It seems that he's trying to talk about anything but that. What's your reaction to today's news? I think the uh, president started trying to manage expectations six, eight months ago, uh, tried to explain to everyone that we were going to see dropping job numbers. We were going to see um, higher inflation rates, uh, exactly what the economists had been forecasting for quite some time it has coming to fruition now. We knew that putting the additional $5 trillion into the economy that the Democrat spending bills have done over the last 20 months was going to cause problems. We uh, certainly recognize that the president shutting uh, the opportunity for the oil and gas companies to lease public lands and to uh, uh, increase their production uh, by pulling the permit for the Keystone XL pipeline. All of these things were going to contribute to higher energy prices. That coupled with the uh, inflation that we're experiencing on other items is really, really making it difficult uh, for, for uh, people all across the nation. 
Now, President Biden is, of course, trying to spin this as positively as he can. Uh, here's what he had to say today. Let's play clip two. The pace of job growth is cooling while still powering our recovery forward. Wage growth for workers remains solid, down from historic high pace months ago, but still growing for workers who deserve a raise. And this is the progress we need to see. Congressman Rosendale, do you agree that this is the progress we need to see? No, the progress we need to see is a uh, replacement in the uh, House of Representatives majority and in the United States Senate majority. And I'm certainly hoping that that's going to happen in November. And then we can start turning these policies around. Uh, that's that's the change we, we need to see. The inflation rates are so high now, Joseph, that even the folks that are experiencing some increases in their wages, it's not enough to compensate for the additional cost of their groceries, of their gasoline that they put in their car, uh, of any of these regular uh, weekly items that they, they really need to purchase. And, and now that we saw OPEC uh, just reduce their uh, production by two million barrels of crude oil a day. We're, we are already saw, I think, uh, crude oil hit $92 a barrel today. It's going back up again at a very time when when people can least afford it. We're going to have the additional uh, prices, uh, energy costs to, to just stay warm this winter. Some of the specifics of the new uh, jobs numbers, the economy added 263,000 new jobs. It is job growth, but it's the Second lowest, second fewest, I should say, jobs numbered, uh, jobs added since COVID recovery began. It's also the lowest number of the year. Congressman Rosendale, you talk about the importance of the midterms uh, and how that would affect the economy. With the Biden administration still in power, what could Congress do that you think would be helpful if the majority changed? So my... my uh real hope is that we will be able to go in next January and swear in a new Congress. And even uh, if we are in split government, whether we regain the Senate, uh, certainly Biden is still going to be controlling the White House. The House of Representatives is charged with developing a budget and appropriating funds. And we can tie our priorities to that budgeting process. We can make sure that we secure the border. Uh, Republicans in the House Natural Resource Committee have introduced about eight bills already uh, this past year to increase the uh, production and the output for our oil and gas products, uh, permit pipelines, uh, create, uh, I think it's three new liquid natural gas facilities for handling this, these products, whether it's domestically or shipping it for overseas. So we can take our priorities and absolutely tie them to the budgeting process, including on day one, eliminating this ridiculous request for 87,000 new IRS agents that are, are, are charged with, they estimate they're going to be able to collect another $200 billion worth of fines and penalties from what I see as my farmers and ranchers and small businesses across Montana. Congressman Rosendale, the Biden administration has been taking credit for months for what has been significant job growth. A uh, bit of an interesting debate about who deserves credit for that, because nine of the 10 states uh, of the top 10 job growth states uh, since the COVID recovery began have Republican governors and 10 of the 10 top 10 job growth states have Republican legislatures. So that's certainly to be uh, one of the arguments taking into, taken into the midterms is whose policies are actually
actually stimulating this economic growth. Uh, but Congressman, another subject I want to get into with you because more bad news from the for the Biden administration this week when OPEC announced that they were going to cut their production of oil in response. It appears the president is going to ease sanctions on Venezuela as well as release uh, more oil from the strategic reserve. What's your reaction to uh, President Biden's reaction? It, it's absolutely ridiculous. We have these products right here domestically. It would it would be good for our national security. It would be good for our economy. And quite frankly, Joseph, it would be better for the environment. We have seen the global emissions have increased over the last two years because President Biden and the uh, outrageous, outlandish left wing of his party are demanding that we reduce our use of oil and gas products. But it's just not happening. What is happening is we're being forced to purchase them from our adversaries and tyrants from around the globe. And it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Again, we have the ability to develop these uh, uh, products domestically. Uh, Republicans have introduced eight pieces of legislation to do just that on the House Natural Resource Committee. Let's go ahead and and strengthen our own economy and our own uh, national security. And again, help the environment all at the same time. It does seem like a lose-lose situation when your choice is to purchase oil either from the Saudis or from the Venezuelans um, and or the Russians, I guess. But all of these look like bad options. And, and of course, right now, we cannot do it all uh, from ourselves. I do want to switch gears a bit because the Department of Veterans Affairs uh, has gotten some attention this week announcing that they are going to perform abortions. Let's go ahead and play clip six. The VA is taking these steps with our primary mission in mind to preserve the lives and health of veterans. There is nothing more important than that. This emergency authority allows us to save lives. Congressman Rosendale, that's Under Secretary of Veterans Affairs for Health. Uh, what's your reaction to this announcement from the VA? Well, I am sure if you'd have played a little bit more of that clip, Joseph, you would have seen what my reaction was. I uh, was very deeply disturbed by that announcement and uh, referred back to the Veterans Health Care Act of 1992, where it explicitly states that the taxpayers' dollars, the Veterans Administration, will not use funds to perform abortions. And they're estimating that just by changing this rule around and inserting the word uh, women's health, so the two words, women's health, that they're going to be able to provide these abortions, and they estimate that they will be providing 1,000 abortions a year um, under this new rule, and I think we're going to see lawsuits filed. Uh, I am pushing very hard to make sure that we can uh, prohibit this from taking place, and I, I, I'm hopeful that we will do so. Now, I understand that Republicans in Congress are concerned this is a violation of the Anti-Deficiency Act. What can you tell us about that? That one I am not familiar with, Joseph. Again, I, okay. what, I, what I am familiar with, though, is the Veterans Health Care Act of 1992, where it ex- right. explicitly states that there will not be um, abortions, abortion counseling even provided by the Veterans Administration. And I will tell you, there has not been any law that has been passed by Congress since that time to change that fact. 
We will continue to track that troubling story as well. And for those who want to give comments on that decision by the Veterans Administration, go to TonyPerkins.com and look at the, there's a link on today's show uh, summary where you can provide public comment on that decision. Congressman Rosendale, one final uh, topic I want to get to you today. President Biden said that we are as close to nuclear war right now as we have been since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Do you share that level of concern and what's to be done? Well, I certainly am concerned anytime that we uh, are engaged or we see conflict that is taking place around the world. But I do not think that uh, Vladimir Putin wants to engage in a nuclear war. There would be global uh, outcry to isolate him, and that is not what he wants at, at this time. It would it would be an absolute catastrophe. We know it; they know it, uh, and it does though show the importance of making sure that we do keep our own nuclear program uh, and our weapons up to date and and ready. Because by keeping those weapons available to us, that is how we're going to keep. These uh, these bad actors and our adversaries around the world in check. Yeah, and that concern, of course, is due to the sense that there is an increasingly desperate uh, President Putin. In about 30 seconds, what should the administration be doing right now? Well, we are doing exactly um, what we, we should be doing, and that is applying additional sanctions, economic pressure uh, on the Putin regime to make sure that they cannot uh, execute their military operations there in the Ukraine. But this always goes back, Joseph, to all the decisions that were made leading up to that, which, which incentivized Putin to go into Ukraine to begin with, which began with rescinding the permit to, for the construction of the Keystone XL. Uh, lifting the sanctions on the Nord Stream pipeline, things like that. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Congressman Matt Rosendale, thanks for your time today. Thank you. Coming up, New York City Mayor Eric Adams has declared a state of emergency because of what's going on at the border. We'll tell you why when we come back. Stay with us. Would you like to spend consistent time in God's word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading intentionally. You will dive deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues of today. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. His Word is necessary in our lives, so much so that Christ said, We are to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He calls it our daily bread because we need it daily to sustain us and nourish us spiritually, just like food does physically. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org slash Bible. First Peter 3.15 instructs us to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that we have. The mission of FRC's online center for biblical worldview is to carry out that first by training Christians to advance and defend the faith in their families, communities, and the public square, as now more than ever, we need to be grounded in the truth of God's word. 
The Center for Biblical Worldview provides amazing written resources for a wide range of relevant issues, including biblical stances on voting, religious liberty, abortion, marriage, and sexuality. Each of these topics comes as a free downloadable PDF version, abbreviated version, and Spanish translation, along with the prayer guide. To access this written series or to sign up for the Center for Biblical Worldview's monthly newsletter, visit frc.org slash worldview. Did you know that from as early as 12 weeks, and certainly by 20 weeks, an unborn child can feel pain? Did you know the issue of pornography is growing among women? Did you know that pornography, sex trafficking, and abortion are all linked and on the rise across the globe? Issues such as pornography, human trafficking, drug legalization, and abortion are all violations of human dignity and have resulted in the devaluation of human life in our culture. Family Research Council stands firm on the principle that every life has value, ought to be respected, and has been designed for a unique purpose. Educate yourself on the harms of pornography, human trafficking, and abortion so that you can offer hope and help. Learn more at frc.org forward slash life. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm in for Tony today. So glad that you are with us. Again, a reminder for those of you who need voter information as we head into the midterms, and that is all of you. Text the word guide to 67742 to get a voter guide delivered straight to your phone. Again, that's text the word guide to 67742. Also, in the last segment, we talked about the troubling new decision by the Veterans Administration that they would begin providing abortions in direct conflict with federal law uh, in order to provide public feedback to that decision. We encourage you to go to TonyPerkins.com. The show summary on today's program provides a link where you can provide comments on that very troubling decision. Again, go to the show summary at TonyPerkins.com for today's show to do that. Now, areas near the southern border have been dealing with record record numbers of migrants coming into the United States since President Biden stepped into office. Preliminary data from the Department of Homeland Security shows an average of 7,300 to 7,500 daily migrant encounters at the southwest border during the month of September. And now, while Democrats at the federal level continue to claim that the border is secure, the busing of migrants from the border to sanctuary cities has made it pretty clear that the border is not secure. And in fact, there is a crisis. We are in a crisis situation. New York City now has more than 61,000 people in our shelter system. That includes thousands of New Yorkers experiencing homelessness and thousands of asylum seekers who have been bussed in over the past few months from other parts of the country. That was New York City Mayor Eric Adams complaining about the 17,000 migrants who have been bussed into the city from Texas since April. 
How long will the Biden administration maintain that the border is secure? With me now to talk about this and more is U.S. Representative Brian Babin, who's co-chairman of the Border Security Caucus, and he serves the 36th Congressional District of Texas. Apparently, Congressman Babin is just lingering for a moment, and he will be with us for context. Again, I mentioned there that the city of New York declared a state of emergency because there have been 17,000 migrants bust into the city of New York since April. Now, for context, we have between 7,300 and 7,500 per day. So that's essentially 17,000 every two and a half days in the month of September. It's a state of emergency for the city of New York, but so far it hasn't been seen as that for the states of Texas and Arizona and California who border the southern border. So is this going to provide uh, some perspective for those who do not leave uh, from those who do not live on the southern border? Now with me to talk about that is Congressman Brian Babin. Congressman, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be with you, Joseph. Now, quickly, your reaction to Mayor Adams' announcement of a state of emergency uh, because there have been 17,000 migrants bust into New York City since April. Well, I mean, it, it, it's laughable to think that they would have, uh, you know, they, they would have uh, considered this uh, something out of the ordinary when we get 17,000 coming in, you know, uh, in just a matter of a week or so. Uh, it's incredible, incredible what we're uh, – the, the hypocrisy of these mayors and these blue cities. And I'd also add, add to that uh, uh, this, too, as well, Joseph, is that many of the migrants that are going to New York now are being bussed out of El Paso, Texas, which happens to be a Democrat-run city and a Democrat mayor. Uh, and, and quite frankly, let's just say this: uh, if if they, if Mayor Adams of New York said that the situation was quote unsustainable, he's right. It is unsustainable, and he needs to call President Biden and tell him just that because we are being subjected to this every hour, every day, seven days a week. Uh, you know, uh, fifty-two weeks a year, and in, in, year in and year out. Uh, Venezuela, for instance, has set. Uh, 20,000 uh, 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 of their folks, and the, the, all the evidence shows that they're emptying their prisons out, sending their violent criminals to our southern border here in Texas. And, and this is another uh, a number that I think people need to be, be aware of. Uh, there, there have been 78 uh, people who are on the terrorist watch list that have been caught coming across the border. But on top of this, we have what we call special interest migrants and these are migrants uh, who have are potential terrorists. They are they they pose a national security risk, and there's been over twenty five thousand of them that have uh, been nabbed this year. That is up six hundred percent. A lot of these are coming from Turkey. Many of these, in fact, almost one hundred percent of them are Islamic. And uh, you know this this is it's just a matter of time. It's not if but when. This country gets hit again uh, by uh, violent terrorists that are seeking to do us harm, and it's coming in over Biden's and Mayorkas' southern border. They have obviously thrown Americans to the wolves. They don't care about national security. They don't care about our safety. Uh, they're willing to, yeah. to risk everything, our, our sovereignty, our solvency, and our national security, uh, so they can get uh, a new, uh, potential new Democrat voters into our country. It is disgusting. Congressman Babbitt, 
I want to play one more clip uh, from Mayor Adams and give you a chance to respond. Let's play clip four. Although our compassion is limitless. Although our compassion is limitless, our resources are not. Our shelter system is now operating near 100% capacity. And if these trends continue, we will be over 100,000 in the year to come. That's far more than the system was ever designed to handle. This is unsustainable. Now, Congressman Babin, I think that is a sentiment that several states have felt for a very long time. Do you have any sense that the Biden administration will receive that message differently coming from the mayor of New York? If the mayor will will make sure that he gets that information and that message in a very, very public way and force this reckless administration under Joe Biden to, to start enforcing the law that he that he, up, he he held up a right hand and swore on the Bible to uphold and, and, and ensure that the Constitution of the United States, the laws are enforced. He is simply not doing it. And for, for Mayor Adams to be complaining about uh, uh, his compassion is limitless, but his resources are not, what a joke. Uh, come down here, Congressman Mayor. Babin? Uh, yes. He is going to come. Unfortunately, we're out of time, so I've got to cut you off. Thanks for joining us. We'll do it again very soon. Great. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Thank you. Come on back. Is marijuana legalization a good idea? We'll talk about it. Stay with us. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony. So glad that you are with us. 
I mentioned at the beginning of the program that President Biden has granted pardons for, quote, all current U.S. citizens and lawful permanent residents who committed the offense of simple possession of marijuana in violation of the Controlled Substances Act, end quote. Now, while the announcement does not legalize marijuana, could it be a step in that direction? And if so, would that be a problem? Here with me to talk about this is Jamie Baluzerbi, Chief of Staff for Smart Approaches to Marijuana. Jamie, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you so much, Joseph. It's great to be here. Now, quickly, what was your reaction when you heard the news that President Biden was going to uh, pardon all the possession offenses? Well, initially, I thought that's a very small number of people. And we've since found out that that's about 6,500 people over the course of 30 years. Because the truth is, is that there's just not a lot of people that are sitting in in jail for possession. There's zero people who are sitting in jail for federal prison for marijuana possession. Zero people got let out of jail yesterday. And so it fits a political narrative, but not really a practical one. Well, then that leads to the following question, because we are weeks away from an election. And when you are weeks away from an election, everything has an electoral purpose. So from your perspective, one who tracks this issue, what would be the political benefit from the Biden administration making this announcement in the days leading up to the midterms? Well, this is all something that's going to gin up the base, right? This is something that you know, people claim that they care about, but ultimately this is not something that's going to get most average Americans out to vote. Most people are more concerned with how much it costs to fill up their gas tank and how much it costs to put food on their table far more than than this issue. And, you know, while, of course, it is absolutely unacceptable that there are people who were in the wrong place at the wrong time, had, you know, one joint, and it just so happened, they should not be walking around with a criminal record. But that's that's really not the narrative that's being pushed now. We're looking, we're not looking at smart decriminalization. We're looking at full-blown legalization and commercialization. And that means we're making room for mostly the tobacco industry to come in to create another addictive substance, to sell it to us as something that's not addictive, and then to profit on it because that's what they do. And let's talk about that because there is concern that this is representative of a growing leniency toward marijuana and in a precursor to eventual to eventual excuse me decriminalization at the federal level you've been tracking this issue we don't have to necessarily guess what the impact has been because many states have decriminalized uh, marijuana possession and in some cases uh, the sale of it as well what have we learned from those states well we've learned that We've been lied to. It doesn't work as well as people want you to believe that it does. You know, legalization isn't working. Now we've got this high potency marijuana product that, you know, 40, 50 years ago, THC made up about two to three percent of marijuana. Now there's products that are up to 99 percent THC potent. That means that there's things are more addicting. There's more risk with this and more risk and more people being, you know, having access to substances is not turning out well. There's more DUIs, there's more poison control calls because children are finding these gummies that look like candy and consuming them and ending up in the emergency room. There are, you know, the illicit market has not been solved by this issue. This legalization actually enables the black market. The black market can't be regulated away. The This just gives law enforcement fewer tools to use. 
And this really isn't a moneymaker for states either. So it's really been a disappointment everywhere. I don't think anybody would say that it's working exactly the way that they thought it would. Well, and I know in the states that have legalized it, one of the great incentives for legislators to legalize it is this sense that you are going to uh, financially profit. The state will benefit. And in some cases, they've tried to fund educational programs through revenues raised by marijuana. But you say that's not working. Why not? Well, I mean, just look at the lottery, right? This is something that much like the lottery is sold to people as a moneymaker, but it's not a moneymaker because it costs more than it brings in. In uh, Colorado Christian University several years ago did a really interesting and thorough study that found that for every $1 that marijuana brings in in tax revenue, Coloradans spend $4.50 offsetting those effects. And that's really the pattern that we're seeing in other states that have legalized. This is not an isolated thing. It's not something that you can just open up to your citizens and expect nothing to happen. Like I said, we see more poison control calls. We see more children that have accidental ingestion. We've got, you know, kids now that are consuming marijuana and are dropping out of high school. That's a cost that is going to continue to cost us as a society for the next, you know, however many decades. So it's just not, it's not as easy as it looks. Jamie, if you could, um, what you mentioned, the uh, cost for every dollar that is raised, four and a half dollars that are expended, what are those costs that the taxpayers are bearing because of legalization? Well, it's the cost of more car crashes on the road. Like I said, more dropouts, more hospitalizations. People are, uh, I recently just found out that young people who consume marijuana in higher potency marijuana regularly. Many of them are now showing up to emergency rooms with cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. This is just aggressive throwing up with, you know, no medical reason why other than just use of high potency marijuana. And so there are real physical effects that our healthcare system is now having to absorb. Law enforcement are not happy with this either because this really just takes fewer options away from them. And I really believe that the goal of good drug policy should be to increase access to treatment and decrease access to harmful substances. And legalization really just falls short there. Jamie Balu-Zerby, thank you so much for stopping by today to help us. I know we'll follow up on this later. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Joseph. Coming up next, Christian nationalism. Should you be scared? We'll tell you about it when we come back. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com.
With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, Family Research Council created a tech subscription platform to be sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. It is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. So if we get canceled, you can still access updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and you will get alerts on the biggest stories of the day. With just a simple text, always have access to our content and stay informed and connected with like-minded community. Text STAND to 67742. That's STAND to 67742. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12- to 15-week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you are with us. Before we get into our weekly worldview segment with FRC's David Clawson, we want to briefly highlight a story that received very little media attention. Last month, a federal appeals court ruled that a prisoner in Wisconsin, a prison, excuse me, in Wisconsin must exempt a male Muslim inmate from strip searches by a transgender guard who is biologically female. Here to talk about this and the impact that the equality would have on a case like this is Travis Weber, Vice President for Policy and Government Affairs here at FRC. Travis, good to see you today. Travis, do we have you? Okay, apparently we are having technical difficulties. Do we have him? Okay. Can I, we are having some technical difficulty and we will get right back to Travis Weber in this case. It's an interesting story out of uh, Wisconsin because you've probably heard stories about female inmates who have complained because there are male prisoners who identify as female who have been housed with them. And in fact, the Biden administration has concluded that that result is required by the law. In some cases, courts have agreed with them. And in several states, they have adopted that as a matter of policy, that women, that male prisoners must be housed with females if they identify as female. However, in this case, we have a Muslim prisoner who said it's a matter of religious freedom not to be strip searched by a biologically female prison guard. And the court agreed with the prisoner. Do we have Travis now? I think so. 
Okay, Travis, we have you with us. All right. Uh, glad we were able to fix that. Um, I tried to describe the case. What am I missing there? Yeah, so um, I think you, you described it fairly accurately. You know, I mean, this is a significant case, however, examining the religious freedom standard that's applied when pitted against the the claims um, of the the gender ideology agenda, which are often advanced in the, on the other side of religious freedom claims. We've seen, obviously, a lot of these cases domestically. This one is noteworthy because of the facts. You have, a, as you mentioned, a Muslim male prisoner who doesn't want his religious freedom rights to be violated by the, the claims of, on the other side, a transgender um, uh, in, uh, guard, biological females uh, identifying as a male, but the, the guard being supported by the claims of the transgender agenda. So if you're examining that, um, it is a very interesting case, and we're glad that religious freedom prevailed in this case, but it really is a, an indicator of where things are going to go in the future as more of these religious freedom cases pop up. And Travis, of course, because this prisoner is a Muslim and in the uh, Muslim religion, uh, there are very strict rules around who you can touch. And touching somebody of the opposite gender is is a strong violation of many Muslims' understanding of Islam. And they are they never touch a someone of the opposite sex that they are not actually married to or a relative of. So this would be a, a significant issue for them. But Travis. As I mentioned in the introduction, there have been many biological females who have been told they must share space in prison with biological males who identify as female. Do you think that this case would provide any help for them? Do those women just need to say they have a religious conviction against being housed with male prisoners? It, it could provide help with them, you know, and they should certainly avail themselves of the precedent being set here in the federal, federal appeals court. You're really above the federal appeals court, just the U.S. Supreme Court. And this court relied on U.S. Supreme Court cases of a similar vein, holding that the Religious uh, Land Use Institutionalized Persons Act, a federal statute that protects the religious freedom of prisoners, similar to the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, applies to protect um, prisoners like here. So they should be availing themselves of that statute's protections. In this case, you had the prisoner claim, look, I have a sincere religious belief that's been substantially burdened. If he can show those three criteria are met, and he did in this instance, then the government has to show it as a compelling interest. It's advancing through the least restrictive means. In this case, the Judge Sykes of the Seventh Circuit said, well, you know, the government can say that advancing federal non-discrimination statutes, Title VII, and um, other uh, statutory criteria, equal protection interests are... Um, are compelling, but the, the prison did not do, them, do that in the least restrictive means, meaning it could have given this prisoner an exemption and still claimed to adhere, adhere to Title VII. So mm -hmm. examining that balance, you certainly would expect that prisoners who have religious freedom claims, again, sincere religious beliefs, been substantially burdened. You have to show those three. You can't just, yeah. as the court, you can't just use this to claim anything. But if they can show that, the government has to prove its case. In this case, it did not meet its burden. Now, Travis, there continues to be a discussion and deliberation over the Equality Act in Congress. The left would very much like to get this into law. Um, the conservatives, social conservatives, the Family Research Council, many of us who believe in religious freedom are very concerned that, about the Equality Act and what it would do. How would it impact a case like this one? Yeah, I mean, I mean the relevance here is, is the, the interest that the president is advancing here, steamrolling religious freedom, would um, 
those interests would be advanced by the Equality Act, even against churches, religious nonprofits, and much more of what we think of as typically religious institutions or religious sectors of society, in addition to public uh, spaces and, and public uh, areas like prisons. So um, certainly when you look at what is, is happening here, the Equality Act would, would take the prison's case, basically, and apply that, the prison's argument in this case, and apply it to many different areas. The Equality Act explicitly exempts RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, from applying to claims in which that are governed by other sections of the Equality Act, basically the claims of the gender ideology agenda. So certainly in this case, um, though our LUPA is a separate federal statute, the theory would hold that our LUPA is irrelevant. The, the basis, the religious freedom basis of our LUPA, entirely irrelevant in this case if you apply the framework of the Equality Act to this fact pattern. Yeah, and to bottom line that, uh, the Equality Act would essentially say that uh, the rights of the transgender prisoner trend, transcend the rights of the religious inmate in all cases uh, as a matter of federal policy, and that would be, of course, very concerning. Travis, thanks for your time today. Thank you. Now, next in our worldview conversation, following the lawless storming of the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, we started hearing more and more about the threat of so-called Christian nationalism. And since the primary election season got underway earlier this year, the phrase has been popping back up, and increasingly so with the midterms approaching. Next week, Family Research Council and the Regent University School of Government will host a pray vote stand town hall on the rise of the term Christian nationalism. Where did it come from and why is it being used? That town hall will be broadcast live from Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. And for information on that, you can text the word town hall to 67742 to find out more. But here with me now to give you an idea of some of the things we'll be discussing next week at the Town Hall Forum on Christian Nationalism is David Clausen, the Director of Biblical Worldview here at the Family Research Council. David, good to see you today. Hey, good to see you and good to be with you, Joseph. Well, first, in order to have this conversation about Christian nationalism, we kind of need to define what we're talking about. But I'm not going to ask you to do that. I'm going to ask you to respond to someone else's definition. Let's go ahead and play clip five. Christian nationalism is basically like this belief, right, that like America is a nation by and for Christians um, and that it's like in need of saving from like satanic forces. Now, David Clausen, that was uh, Christopher Matthias uh, defining his understanding of Christian nationalism. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, that's an interesting definition, Joseph. And I think the fact that he has that definition, and if you were to ask that question to somebody else, that you'd probably get a different definition. I think it points to the fact that there really is no agreed upon definition of Christian nationalism. Now, I think it's, and I, we'll get into this, I'm sure, in this conversation on why this term is cropped up, what the agenda behind it is. But I think it, it's fair to say, um, when you when you study the issue, when you, when you think about Christian nationalism, uh, Christian nationalism, to the best of my ability to discern uh, where it actually exists, is really where someone kind of conflates uh, their American identity with their Christian identity. And so I think we did see this, like you said, Joseph, emerge kind of around January 6th, but it was used even before that, um, really to refer to folks who maybe would give America kind of this 
transcendent meaning in redemptive history. And so um, I think that we can talk about it, and I will talk more about it at the town hall, um, but I think it's, it, it, yes, nationalism, I've always understood it kind of equating to patriotism, but clearly those who are talking about Christian nationalism with this kind of urgency and acting really scared about it, uh, they're, they're, they're trying to do something in our, our political discourse. Now, Christopher Matthias is a reporter with Huffington Post. He also said this. Let's go ahead and play clip one. At its core, it is like explicitly anti-democratic. It is does not believe in pluralism, does not believe in uh, democracy. It, it believes in dominion and domination and a kind of, you know, a government run by um, their very particular interpretation of scripture. Now, David Clawson, when I hear that definition, I get concerned as well. You're a Christian. I'm a Christian. We spend time with Christians. How many people do you know that actually share the, the definition of who, who would subscribe to Christian nationalism as it's defined there? Well, yeah, as it was defined there, Joseph, I'd be scared to death uh, of that as well. But I, just yesterday, I was with FRC President Tony Perkins. We were at a pastor's conference in um, in Kentucky at the Ark Encounter, uh, which you know, was built by Ken Ham. Uh, there was 1,100 pastors there. I, I don't think there'd be a single pastor in that room, Joseph, that would said that would say that that describes their view of the relationship between their faith and politics. And so I think it's important to realize, and, and Joseph, let me add this, it's important to realize we're hearing all this talk about Christian nationalism and the Christian right, the religious right. It, it, you hear the term theocracy thrown around as well kind of in this conversation. These conversations, I've noticed a trend. I've been around enough election cycles. To, you know, we're only a month out from the midterm elections, and that's where you start hearing this theocracy language, this Christian nationalism language, not saying that there are a few people that have those ideas, but it does seem to be uh, used and weaponized around election time with this idea to kind of to motivate the, the, the left's base to kind of scare them and to kind of marginalize Christians who don't want to be painted with that really scary Christian nationalism label. You know, David, it is true that there are people who are Christians who do want to see the American government, and frankly, all governments, govern in a way that is consistent with God's truth as revealed in Scripture. And that, in many cases, uh, is labeled as Christian nationalism. But I want to quote a couple other people that Americans might think favorably. They happen to start this country, one of whom was named John Adams. And he said that our Constitution was made for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. Uh, that might be labeled as Christian nationalism. George Washington, some people will remember or recognize that name. He said, is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and humbly to implore his protection and favor. Now, it's my belief that if an American politician today said those words, there would be outrage in response. Um, were the founding fathers Christian nationalists? Yeah, and another uh, person to quote, Joseph, would be Thomas Jefferson. A lot of folks 
will, uh, you know, they know his, his uh, phrase, separation of church and state, and that's been, you know, weaponized by secularists in the ACLU. But when Jefferson actually wrote that in 1800, he was writing to the Danbury Baptist Association. And what he meant by that was that there should be a separation uh, to protect the church, the institutional church, from the institution of the government. My goodness, by no means did he mean that religion uh, shouldn't have, and, and the Christian faith shouldn't influence and compel people with their, their beliefs. And so you're absolutely right. If folks that uh, founded this country uh, would be painted as Christian nationalists. You know, Doug Mastriano, who's running for governor of Pennsylvania, he was on the show uh, on Washington Watch a couple of days ago. He's called for 40 days of prayer and fasting in the lead up to the um, midterm election. You know, and he was immediately smeared as, a, as a, someone who's trying to impose theocracy, and, you know, that's really scary. Well, my goodness, Abraham Lincoln, uh, uh, Roosevelt, and others have all, you know, that's something common in our heritage is calling for days of prayer and fasting. And so I think one thing we need to point out, Joseph, that I think is helpful in this conversation is that this type of language of prayer and fasting and invoking God, this is part of our culture. This is part of the heritage of this nation. And for those who want to say that this is something sinister or devious or that's undermining pluralism, um, it just shows they're actually historically illiterate. And really, that's not at all what motivates faithful Christians engaging in the public square. I also think there's some irony in the fact that it is John Adams and George Washington and people who are overtly Christian. Not every founder was it was overtly uh, evangelical Christian, but many of them uh, were what we would describe that way. They were the ones who created this pluralistic, tolerant society that we now celebrate because of its religious diversity. And there's this concern that the Christians are the threat to religious diversity, when ironically, it is a Christian set of values, a, a Christian group of, fa- of, of founders who established the environment where religious diversity uh, could exist. But David, in about 30 seconds, what's the difference between just good old public engagement uh, on behalf of a Christian and Christian nationalism? Yeah, I think a line is crossed from patriotism and what we would, you know, just nationalism, a line is crossed into this Christian nationalism when one puts politics in the place of ultimacy. So if someone views politics and their candidate and their campaign as ultimate, as the most important thing that displaces everything in their life, I do think that's a red flag that your allegiance to the Lord has been supplanted by something else. And that is something that those of us who engage in politics need to be aware of. Amen. David Clawson, thanks for your time as always. Thank you, Joseph. And thank you, friends, for being with us. We'll see you next time on Washington Watch. Until then, fear God, but nothing else. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.